So um, I will turn it over to you and uh, I'm gonna ask speakers to flip their own slides. I'll think I'll do it for you, Susan, at the beginning. And to you, Simon. Mark, thank you very much. And uh, it's actually great to see what kind of progress you managed to achieve with building this community, with building this platform. I remember you had three slides and now we have these beautiful videos. One that, what I like the most uh, about them is that you have the best pictures of me I have. Like <laughs> somehow you got the best of me. And uh, thanks very much for, uh, for introducing this particular deep dive. So hello everyone and welcome to our sequel of deep dives on the future of work an intellectual pursuit also known as the as the foe uh today we will be we will bring forward some of the future workplace challenges that are specific to women we will talk about the issues that can benefit from direct and indirect applications of technologies we will see that the investment opportunities in these areas are immense uh that's exactly what mark was talking about when he was saying that inclusion uh, doesn't mean only a social thing and a media thing, but it's actually a very good uh, business opportunity, a set of very good business opportunities for all of us. The examples of direct applications are improvements in medical care, household management, and tools specific to the era of remote work. Indirect technology enable changes, such as access to media that helps highlight and elevate problems. It does the increase of awareness is bound to promote the need for direct applications. It does for, uh, bound to promote business opportunities. In other words, uh, we will talk about new and old trends in different parts of the world and how investments can alleviate uh, the bad ones and promulgate the good ones. Personally, I felt them, uh, that life uh, was not fair to women observing my mom. She had to work and carry the load for the family, while my dad was solving interesting problems at work. I came from a traditional society where men admired women before the marriage and then, in many cases, were demeaning and abusing them for the rest of their lives. My, my paternal grandmother supposedly wished my mom to have only sons because otherwise her mother's heart would be in eternal pain seeing the fate of her daughters. Let's face it, traditionally men uh, view women as the opposite sex. We don't talk, uh, at our, uh, we don't look at ourselves as well as women as two groups with different needs. The technology in many ways accentuates all the differences by providing equal access to expression through media and channeling the voices into political expression. As a result, both groups need to learn more about needs of each other. The, and um, you will hear from our keynote speakers many facts that will break the stereotypes of both conservatives and liberals. It is not that we will learn it is not only that we will learn statistics and facts, but also will hear addressable issues and solutions. In fact, I hope you, like me, will come to the conclusion that the ensuing trend is so powerful that the name of our deep dive future is female is not far fetched. We will hear from 
thought leaders, ultra-successful professionals who are also mothers of as many as seven kids. As a side note, I had uh, uh, when I had my first child, I didn't know what to do with him. Now I have no clue what I'm doing with two kids. And our guests are far ahead of me. They don't know what to do with seven kids. Susan Payne, our first keynote speaker, has been living life uh, of adventure, like other speakers, by the way. She's a lawyer by training. Susan set up and ran emerging market desks for two bulge bracket banks, uh, founded and ran an emerging market uh, fund. In general, it seems that she has she cannot stop running. When she ran out of inspiration in banking, she started running marathons and keeps running them while running a few agricultural businesses in Africa. Even as a typical representative of Africa, she doesn't look typical. Susan will share her observations on Africa and thoughts on investment opportunities that will benefit people, especially women of Africa. The, bio, the bios of other speakers are as incredible. Our second keynote speaker, Alex, will talk about the successes of women, notwithstanding all the awkward issues that still exist in the workplace. Alex is a partner in one of the largest global integrators and the winner of the Goldman Sachs Global Women Leaders Award. She will go over statistics that will show that women demonstrate the results that stand by themselves and justify the push to get them accept, uh, accepted in top management roles. Denise, whom we uh, all know and greatly respect, will share her vision of a work dynamic in the future and the increased importance of women uh, for the success of, uh, of businesses. Denise is co-founder and of this series of deep dives and uh, will help the audience to stay engaged throughout the entire event by running chat. Please keep busy uh, by participating. Gary Bells, uh, who advises a few governments on four-related issues, is our fourth keynote speaker. Gary will share methodological perspective on the observations of the preceding speakers. Uh, his summary will help us better understand which issues are solvable and highlight the concepts that may help us understand the intellectual background of some ideas of OECD governments. Uh, let's uh, step back to the definition of the future work. It is a loosely defined intellectual quest to predict and direct many forces of change affecting three deeply connected dimensions, dimensions of an organization. Work, the what, work, uh, uh, workforce, the who, uh, and the workplace, uh, the where. Three keynote speakers will be talking about the who, women, and what section of four. Uh, Denise, however, will address the where section, and so will our panel, comprised of the fund managers. Uh, our panel participants are very successful female entrepreneurs and fund managers. They will share their experiences and, and the observations that shall give the audience a better understanding of what can be done to make the opportunities equal while considering specific needs and talents of women. 
In other words, we will cover all the basic, all the basis of the foe. Uh, in conclusion, uh, I would like to thank Mark again for helping us. And uh, with this, I invite Susan to the mic. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone from England. Um, I'd like to talk to you today for the next 10 minutes about investing in women-led businesses with a particular spotlight on emerging markets where I've worked over the last 30 years, as, as Simon has referred. What I'd like to explore is why women remain underinvested and underrepresented despite the growing number of successful female founders and female-focused businesses around the world. Some of the data and facts may surprise you, and though there's evidence of what I would call a new normal evolving around women's roles in the workplace, I'll then wrap up by discussing some of the opportunities I see available for investment. And those are going to be largely focused in Africa, where I am currently based. Where I sit in a developed market in the UK, progress has been slow. While we're seeing increasing numbers of board seats taken by women, a subject to be covered in more detail by Alex Wren next, there are, believe it or not, equal numbers of CEOs called Peter as there are female CEOs in the FTSE 100 full stop, six to be exact. On a slightly more positive note though, a number of FTSE 100 female directors has risen, from 50, has risen by 50% in the last five years due to certain successful initiatives in the UK. What's evident is that the numbers of women in positions of authority are increasing though slowly. There are now 29 female heads of state globally, there are more women heads of law firms, a very few of banks. Across all sectors, really, there are increasing female numbers, including in previously male-dominated professional sports like rugby and boxing. This new normal involving the rising profile of women across multiple sectors and leading businesses, I think, is supported by three things. The first is a new focus on diversity and inclusion globally as well as on mental health, mindfulness, and well-being. The benefits and value of diversity to any collective unit, including boards, have been proven, with female representation and top management found to improve innovation, compliance, and the bottom line. Secondly, the COVID reset that has shone a brighter light on global roles, gender, and diversity. While COVID has created economic dislocation and challenges around the world, it's allowed us, actually it's forced us, to show greater empathy for others at both an individual and a national level, like frontline workers. Gender issues melt away in crises and solutions have required the competence, innovation and drive of diverse people working together, regardless of gender, company, culture or country. We've seen very recently international reckonings involving global inequality, racism and the role of women, highlighting the often unpaid invisible work they do. And these have run alongside the Me Too movement, the social call to arms against sexual abuse and harassment. All of these issues highlight the necessity for a more inclusive future for all of us, especially for women. And finally, the vital role of female networks and initiatives, like the 30% Club in the UK to increase women on boards. Equally, one noteworthy network was 85 Broad, started by the luminary Janet Hansen, a former Goldman Sachs financier who launched this early professional women's network in 1997 that grew to 30,000 members in 130 countries before it was sold in 2013 and renamed Elevate. I worked with Janet at Goldman and then headed the UK chapter of 85 Broads for a decade, witnessing its impact on women collaborating firsthand in those early days 
Today, there are various highly successful women's networks that continue to make an impact empowering women, like 100 Women in Hedge Funds, like the My Connections Mentoring Program launched by General Electric in the UAE, and also Women of the Future, a network which is based in the UK and Asia Pacific and headed by another extraordinary woman named Pinky Lalani. Against this backdrop of the rise of women in developed markets and initiatives and structures that support them, this new normal is challenged in emerging markets, especially frontier emerging markets. In fact, the three-tier system has resulted separating the developed markets from the BRICS and the UAE as advanced developing markets, and finally from Africa, the frontier market. What is clear is that in emerging economies generally, female talent is underinvested and underleveraged, and the reasons are both work and family related. Women often face a triple whammy of gender, ethnicity, and cultural attitudes. Of respondents in Brazil, China, and the UAE, as you'll see here, the more developed of the emerging markets, 25 to 36% believe that women are treated unfairly in the workplace because of their gender. In India, the number is 45%. In Russia, the figure is only 19% owing to its communist legacy. Mark, I think that that slide is the wrong uh, slide. I'm sorry. If you could go back one. Is that the... Thank you very much. That's super. That's what I'm looking for. Regarding women's income, in the best case scenario, only 42% of highly educated women earn as much as or more than their spouses. Positively, though, the tertiary education of women in the BRICS and UAE, as well as their ambition, is extremely robust, as you'll see on that slide. In India, over 80% of women aim to hold a top job, which compares with 40% in the U.S., 55% of university degrees are completed by women across emerging markets, very close to 58% in the U.S. In the more developed emerging markets, we see the ingredients to accede to the top exist, but are often hampered by unique EM pushes and pulls. Family pulls are not simply about childcare, but especially in the BRIC countries, about taking care of elders. In India and China, many educated women may have one or no children, but 70% will have elder care responsibilities. Far more women in these countries live with their parents and 68% assist their parents financially, according to a Harvard study. Also, there are cultural differences. In Saudi, for example, in Saudi, for example, there is gender-based segregation in work and public spaces. Until 2017, women were not allowed to drive in Saudi and there still prevails a male guardianship system where a man controls a Saudi woman's life from her birth until her death. So how to locate the talented women in emerging markets? What studies show is that multinationals deeply want to harness talent in emerging economies, but do so largely through universities. In Brazil, women are 60% of college graduates, in the UAE, 65%. So this works very well in those regions. However, the advancement of women is hampered not just by elder care and gender bias, but also by travel and safety issues. Crime is rife in many emerging markets, and travel is not always easy nor welcome. Brazil has issues of kidnapping, India of eve teasing, and of rape. What happens when many females lack the opportunity to even get to university, though, where they then have no representation? This is the common, this is much more common in Africa, a high growth continent with multiple opportunities, but certain obstacles and contradictions. Thanks, Mark. On the one hand, Africa is a continent of 54 countries with a larger land mass than China, India, and the USA and Europe combined. 
with eight of the top 15 fastest growing economies in the world and with demographic drivers second to none. Of its 1.2 billion population, 60% of its citizens are under 25 years old, making it the world's youngest continent and will comprise the largest workforce in the world by 2040. Unlike many emerging markets, thank you very much, unlike in many emerging markets where university degrees are taken by more women than men, the major issues in Africa are lack of education and lack of wage earning employment. Africa's youth is one of the greatest resources it has, yet higher education remain, remains low and unemployment high. Africa has the highest rate of educational exclusion in the world, with 60% of children between 15 and 18 years old not in school, and girls are much more likely not to go to school than boys. Only 9% of the African population attends university at all, whereas 51% does so in Latin America and the Caribbean, and 80% in OECD countries. Shockingly, at this rate, the World Economic Forum's 2018 Global Gender Gap Index shows it will take 128 years to close the gender gap in Africa. However, there are two encouraging facts about the continent. First, perseverance. For a continent blighted by the world's highest maternal mortality rate, low levels of legal protection for women, and poor tertiary education, it beats all regions globally in its proportion of women entrepreneurs. It is the world's leader in female business owners. This is a key ingredient for Africa's growth, as women make up 50% of Africa's entrepreneurs, although they earn 34% less than men. Why? Two reasons. In Africa, startups are often seen as a necessity for women and not a choice, since wage opportunities are scarce, training is often not available, and discrimination a problem in hiring practices. This is further impacted as women carry an uneven burden of childcare, and women often operate in comparatively less profitable sectors, However, I've also found many very well-educated and ambitious African women to be highly entrepreneurial and seek to go it on their own, often using microfinance or family loans. The second surprise to you may be that Africa is a global leader, in fact, the global leader of women on boards. According to McKinsey, 25% of board members are female compared with Europe at 23% and the laggard Latin America at only 7%. This advance has been led by only a handful of African nations, however, South Africa, Botswana, Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda, and in jobs where women are unlikely to lead. When we say the future is female, it is to spotlight certain facts. Women university graduates globally exceed men. Women consumers globally form a growth market larger than the markets of India and China combined. Professional women globally are ambitious, though underinvested. Combine this with the rabbit hole of opportunities on continents like Africa, for example, and there is a mass of untapped potential to be realized. Mark, can you take the slides off? That's great. Thank you. That's perfect. Basically, Africa is the world's next big, biggest growth market, where a business revelation, revolution is currently underway, where rapid tech makes the continent fertile for innovation. I view Africa as a generational opportunity. There are over 400 companies with revenues of over $1 billion, $1.4 trillion in consumer spending, soon to be $2.1 billion in consumer spending, which is already more than India. This really is a call to entrepreneurs and to organizations seeking expansion opportunities across the board in emerging markets with a focus on the many entrepreneurs on the continent, many female entrepreneurs on the continent. 
My particular focus is food and agriculture, infrastructure, and food delivery systems, and I'm interested in food security. The agri-sector in Africa provides the main source of livelihood for 60% of the population in Africa, and up to 80% in many African countries, like Zambia. Also, investment in food and agriculture has a larger impact on the alleviation of poverty than in any other sector, and the opportunities are vast because Africa imports $40 billion of food each year and yet has the land, labor, and climate to be entirely self-sufficient and an exporter. At Holistic, we're currently raising capital for various projects in plant protein, renewables, CBD, hemp, and others. But we're also advisors in emerging markets generally and happy to work with any investors to identify the best in class in any business sector. While the tide is changing in developed markets, I hope that the new normal globally might encourage some of you to contemplate investment opportunities among the various female-led businesses in emerging economies that will, possibly sooner than you think, compete very favorably with the developed markets. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Alex, it's your turn. Susan, it was brilliant. Very interesting. Thank you, Susan. Great. Hello, everybody. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yep. Perfect. Okay. Uh, I'm Alex Gren. Uh, hello to everybody. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Mark, Simon, and Denise. Um, Lovely to be here and to share with you some statistics on where we are in terms of board diversity and participation of women in VC uh, funding. Elaine, to show you how addressing the gender gap uh, that uh, Stephen has referred to at the beginning uh, in business could unlock up to $28 trillion in global GDP, as uh, per recent numbers from McKinsey. Uh, we can uh, move, move forward. So uh, women make up 50% of the world's uh, population. As referenced by many business leaders over the years, it is remarkable that many societies, the more progressive ones, as well as those more traditional, would continue to ignore economic facts around the continued untapped opportunities for their country's GDPs and for the wealth and the well-being of their own people by holding women back. Women have always been crucial to social and economic progress. They have been called upon at times of crises over the centuries as well as now. In the last 18 months, we've all been reminded by those keeping count how well countries managed by women have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, reducing its impact on the country's economies as well as the lives of the people. Historic examples abound as well. The picture of the bottom right-hand side of this slide is iconic. It was taken in 1927, and it shows some of the world's most respected scientists of those times, including Einstein. What makes this picture particularly significant is that there's only one woman in the group, Marie Curie, born Maria Skłodowska in 1867 in Poland. She was determined to become a scientist at a time when women in the Western world couldn't vote, often couldn't own property, women in general were not being educated, and whilst her native country of Poland didn't exist on the map as it was occupied. Yet... Maria didn't let any of those small details stop her. For a long time, she was the only person, woman or man, to have been awarded the Nobel Prize twice in two fields, chemistry in 1903 and physics in 1911. In fact, she helped millions of men. How? When World War I broke out in Europe in 2014, uh, Maria saw a way to apply her expertise to save lives of the wounded soldiers. She took her electromagnetic radiation 
X-ray machines and help doctors identify bullets and shrapnel embedded in the soldiers' bodies and remove them. She was a trailblazer, and she inspired a lot of women over the last century and today, and girls to become scientists. So as the brand advertising campaign from Adidas goes, impossible is nothing, not even the prospect of future being female. Let's go uh, to the next slide. There's a, a long history uh, of examples of women determination to get their seat at the table and many success stories of global businesses being built and run by women leaders. In the last 20 years, the private sector has stepped up its focus on investing in women and has committed hundreds of millions of funding to the cause. Back in March of 1998, Goldman Sachs found, uh, founded the 10,000 Women Initiative, which committed $100 million at that time to providing business and management education and training, links to capital, mentoring, and networking to 10,000 women all around the world. Today, apart from numerous large-scale organizations' commitments to women empowerment, wealthy individuals such as Mackenzie Scott and Melinda Gates have pledged billions to support women empowerment causes. Next slide. So what's the business case? Well, data shows that gender equality improves a company's bottom line and boosts the global economy. A growing body of evidence shows how companies can benefit from investing in women as employees, entrepreneurs, customers, and community partners. Such investments help companies in several ways, from broadening the talent pool to increasing productivity, providing an opportunity to transform local and global markets. Companies with women at the top and through the organization perform better across all metrics, as you can see referenced here in terms of return on equity, share price, performance, growth rate. Actually, these studies and the results they're showing in terms of performance keep getting better and better, and studies abound on, 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 in the public domain. Um, next. Um, McKinsey Global Insights uh, did a study in 2020 and showed that gender inequalities are not only a moral and social conundrum, but also an economic one. Uh, as stated at the beginning, women account for half the world's working age population, but for only 37% of GDP. That discrepancy robs the global economy of about 12 trillion in wealth we could share if each country improved gender equality as quickly as the fastest improving country in its region did. True gender equality everywhere could raise global GDP by up to 28 trillion which is a powerful statistic to ignore. That's the price of gender inequality. Uh, now let's look at the, some of the data points uh, if we move to the next slide. Uh, numbers don't lie. Uh, what, uh, what we're getting from uh, uh, numerous studies is uh, some facts around how uh, diverse companies are 33% more likely to have greater financial returns how companies with above-average management diversity generate 19% higher innovation revenues, but still only 12% of decision-makers at VC firms are women, and less than 3% of all VC dollars flow to companies led only by women. Corporate America is broken for women. Women fall behind men from the very first promotion. 
This is what's referred to as the broken rung in the corporate ladder. Women who still reach the top hit a ceiling and often get stuck as COOs, the number twos. Only 7% of Fortune CEOs are women. If we move forward. The best way to fix this isn't to blame or to exclude men who are in charge and can be powerful allies. But we can also help them understand their unconscious biases, which could be their blind spots. Also, when it comes to improving performance of their assets. Um, so when it comes to the missed opportunities, uh, the re a recent study performed by IBM showed that actually uh, the pandemic, which hit us uh, so hard over the last 18 months, have uh, turned back the clock for women. Uh, we're actually doing worse. Whole societies and economies, millions of men and women suffered, but women and minorities especially have been hit the hardest. If uh, Elon Musk had already figured out for some of us to live on Mars by now, we might be lured into thinking that this is not our problem. Although he is highly confident that SpaceX will land humans on Mars by 2026. However, people with some appreciation for history and the fact that no country is immune from the this cannot happen here situation recognize that social and economic stability are key to everybody's long-term well-being and peaceful future of each country. Enabling glaring disparities to thrive and deepen can only push the losing, the losing side of the trade to radical moves. That's why the time to act is now. The ambivalence that's on the rise uh, has already been, been referenced by uh, Stephen and uh, Susan and other speakers. Um, the burdens of um, looking after elderly and children at home and juggling a lot of many responsibilities have really impacted women and minorities. Uh, and the social unrest witnessed over the last two years, especially uh, are not disconnected from, from what's happening on the employment front. That's why men are actually key to driving change. And uh, the mindset shifting is key to uh, ensuring that there is more prosperous uh, and peaceful future for all of us, especially when it comes to the pipeline building in terms of women, uh, whereby women in early and middle career stages are hit the hardest because this is the, the age bracket where usually they have to juggle a lot of responsibilities outside of work. We go forward. So in terms of, um, uh, um, in terms of uh, funding uh, onto corporate boards, there's still a lot to be done in bringing more women into executive and non-executive boards. Uh, BCG reported that companies uh, with above uh, average diversity uh, create innovation revenue, which is key to the, to the growth aspect of each company. Currently, women hold 20% of the board seats of the Russell 3000 companies, which is an increase from 17% in 2018. Despite the improvements, 41% of uh, Russell 3000 companies still have one or no women on their boards. In 2018, California became the first U.S. state to pass Bill 826, mandating all public companies with executive offices in that state to
to have at least one woman on their boards by December 2019. Massachusetts, Washington, and others are following California's lead on diversity. Along with the new laws, companies face pressure from institutional investors like BlackRock, State Street, Fidelity to improve board diversity. Actually, Goldman Sachs said that it would not take public companies with no diversity or women on the board. The second phase of uh, the Bill 826 has a deadline of December 2021, and it compels companies with five member boards to have at least two female members, uh, and uh, increasingly so as the boards are bigger. Uh, when it comes to VC funding, uh, the data is quite abysmal. Uh, women throughout the sort of life cycle of the funding face bigger hurdles in terms of questions that are being asked on the risk side, uh, in terms of opportunities, in terms of mixed teams, and uh, what happened last year in terms of uh, attracting less than 3% of, uh, of VC funding just uh, goes to show how impassable kind of the task of developing women, women leaders and running companies and, and uh, generating higher performance uh, results for investors uh, is becoming. If we go to the next um, um, slide, yes, th there's another data point around a, um, a BCG study which showed that startups funded and co-funded by women garner less in investments but generate more revenue. So um, it, it's, it's quite uh, amazing to see these stats, and yet it's amazing to see that people are not realizing the opportunity, the money left on the table, and are unable to change their mindsets, biases, and, and the fact that there's so many blind spots uh, which are precluding people from um, actually generating more wealth only because of their cultural kind of boundaries in their own heads. If we go further. Um, so in terms of uh, first, uh, first movers, uh, there are companies that are already um, doing a lot. And those institutional investors I had referenced are really at the forefront. And they're kind of making the market in terms of driving the change for women. Um, again, I referenced a number of studies, uh, and they abound. But uh, greater representation of women uh, uh, translates into reported 61% higher revenue growth and 54% increase in creativity and innovation. Again, this is a data point that comes from the recent IBM uh, um, report. So uh, if you want to make investments uh, in leaps and not in increments, drive uh, change. Become uh, change agents, not only for your daughters and for your wife's partners, friends, but really for, for your communities, for the countries you live in, for, 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 for um, the economy. So treat gender equity uh, and the representation of more women in business as, a survive, as if your survival or your assets performance survival depended on it. If you can make more, uh, um, you know, an increased 20 or 30 percent uh, return on your assets, why wouldn't you ask hard questions of your boards, of the companies you've invested in, of the companies you're working with as partners? Define and track goals, drive accountability, and not just uh, um, statements. Um, remember that it's not, if you want to change the world, it's not by your opinion, but by your action, as I heard a wise person say. So, uh, uh, so remember that uh, change starts with us, not with the outside world. 
focus on the middle uh, to build pipeline anywhere you are actually also in terms of your investment something that doesn't sometimes look like um like you know the the uh sort of person or the investment to follow others might poach uh very quickly and that's how uh, a lot of um hiring happens with women it's actually not so uh easy for them to uh to uh, climb the corporate ladder in their own companies and very often they're actually poached by competition because they're realizing that uh, they're just not being heard and define and track those inclusive uh, environment uh, environment metrics meaning how uh, conducive is the environment for women to actually or for younger women to actually develop and and, and work within uh, uh those companies um next um and then um some just examples to leave you with with uh, some amazing women uh especially uh Cathy Murphy and Abigail Johnson on the Bloomberg uh, front page uh, I was a mentee job shadowed Cathy Murphy and got to know Fidelity uh quite well um Cathy uh, Murphy is the president uh of uh, Fidelity Personal Investing and will be retiring this year after 12 years of an amazing run where she grew Fidelity's primary uh primary being B2B financial company to one with nearly 4 trillion direct to consumer business. She grew the business fourfold. And Abby Abby Johnson obviously the chair uh and the granddaughter of the of the uh founder. Uh so there are many examples of amazing women around you. Some of them are already at a C-suite, others are just coming up in the pipeline. Take a moment to look around, uh, take a moment to actually be the one who spots that opportunity around you because opportunities are everywhere uh but uh you need to be able to find them. Thank you. Alex, thank you so much. Very inspiring, really. And statistics and uh I wouldn't say that statistics was ever more inspiring to me than today. Thank you. Okay. And uh Uh now Denise is your turn. I will take up your task on the chat for now. <laughs> okay, go for it. Um excellent presentation so far. Susan, I really appreciated the global aspect. That was kind of new news for me and I think just having that idea of what's happening differently in other parts of the world provides a degree of context to this conversation that is really really valuable. And Alex, your stats and your 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 points here are just so valid. Like just the op- we are literally leaving money on the table by not addressing this issue in a more material way. So I love the instructions as well of what people can do in their day-to-day decision making to address this. So while Simon is taking over and monitoring the chat, I have a couple of slides that I want to run through you and I want to just give you a little bit of perspective on how I'm coming at this conversation. So I'm a workplace futurist and founder at Sway Workplace. So I come from a different side of the conversation. What we're doing at Sway is building a platform that allows managers to build more engaged and connected teams in a hybrid workplace by combining training, coaching and community. And we do this because we fundamentally believe in two things. We believe that the future of work is flexible work and we believe that the future is female. The future of work is code for an unprecedented degree of change in how we approach work. We see this as an opportunity to systematically equalize the playing field through our collective actions and by co-creating the future that we want to live in. Next slide, Mark. And by the way, Denise, do you want to take over or do you want me to No, you can go for it. No problem. 
All right, sorry. Uh, this is not my forte, but go. Okay. So my contribution to the conversation is more about how do we uncover the why of the situation and of the matter. So we've seen so the presentation so far and that the data is really crystal clear that having a strong and active female workforce at companies in senior leadership positions, on boards, funding, starting, and running disruptive companies just makes better, better business sense. And it seems to me like it's an extraordinary opportunity to be able to solve what is an emotional, social, community, and moral issue, whilst improving the probabilities of making more money than if you had not. So what I am stuck on is the why can't we get there? Would all of this make sense? So if Elon Musk's Tesla Roadster is floating in space, we find ourselves here tripping over the same conversation. So why is a powerful word? Because if you continue to ask it, you'll find yourself on the inside of the conversation and on a path to finding what is the root of the problem and the answer to the why. Next slide, Mark. I look for the why in two ways. The first is through the lens of thinking like a futurist. So futurism is not about predicting the future. So there are no crystal balls. There's no potions and there's no tea leaves. It's an analytical approach that looks at both historical patterns and existing signals to create a plausible scenario for what the future may hold. It's about making informed and wise decisions today to shape the future that we want to live in. So what's a signal? Signals are a specific example of the future in the present. In the present, it's like getting a call about a clue that something is changing and a trend is emerging. Next slide, Mark. So there are three signals that I've been tracking that lead me to believe that the future is female. The first one is that according to data released by the CDC, the U.S. birth rate fell to the lowest point in more than a century. Other data report is that the U.S. population grew by only 7.4% over the past decade, which is the smallest increase since the 1930s. The birth rate declined for the sixth straight year, and the average adult today has 17% fewer children than they did in 1990 and 50% fewer than in 1960. So it's not uncommon for advanced economies to experience a lower birth rate as more women are educated into the workforce. But what is a concern is the drop that is due to slowing, slow growing incomes and the childcare crisis. And what could that long range impact be of a continuing decline in the birth rate? Totally as a side note, in March, Israeli scientists had a breakthrough when they grew hundreds of mouse embryos in artificial wombs, saying that this groundbreaking method could lead to human gestation outside of the womb, decoupling childbearing from women. So when I saw that, I'm like, is that a call that I would want to take from the future? The second signal I'm looking at is in Q1 2019, Pew Research reported that women made up half the U.S. college-educated labor force. So women had been earning the majority of degrees in the U.S. since the early 80s. Of those who earned a bachelor's degree last year, 57.5% were women. And yet historically, Women have been less likely to enter the workforce after graduation, 36% less likely, according to Bloomberg. It wasn't until this year that they edged out men with similar degrees to become the majority. 
So these comments and that data is from 2019. And this trend is projected to continue, meaning that the future labor force will be increasingly and predominantly female. Next slide, Mark. The third signal I've been looking at is in the future of work, the most valued and sought after skills are those that are naturally associated with female energy. As we continue to move away from the traditional hierarchical structure of companies towards decentralized organizations, we will rely less on the masculine oriented skills of command and control and rely increasingly on the female oriented skills of compassion, empathy, patience, collaboration, and teamwork. So these are traits that used to be considered weak have now actually become a superpower in the future of work. In an AI-influenced world of work, the companies that will flourish will be those that elevate the human capabilities of its people. So these signals are what I follow that helps me shape my view that the future is indeed female, and it really is a check-the-box exercise. So the falling birth rate is an opportunity for an unencumbered workforce. The college-educated labor pool is predominantly female and with an abundance of the sought-after skills. So for all intents and purposes, the future is female. However, I see that this is on paper only. The second way I look for the why is through the lens of systems thinking. It's a really powerful way to look at any issue because it's a process that mutes noise and distractions and allows you to bypass the symptoms to see the source of the problem itself. As Deming wisely quotes, if you want to change how people behave, change the system. There are two, here's a little story to demonstrate what that means. And there are two, the, the two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over in the other and says, what the hell is water? You have to step out and away from the situation to look back and see all that you have to work with. Next slide, Mark. I think that we can all agree that we don't have a supply issue. The ambitious and highly educated fem female labor pool continues to grow. And I don't think that we have a demand issue. I mean, diversity and inclusion initiatives are very widely embraced and the economics are better. What we have is a pipeline issue. This is what's been referred to earlier, and this is what McKinsey calls the broken rung. Next slide, Mark. The biggest obstacle women face is that very first step up to management. It's a structural flaw in the system of work that causes women to drop out or step back in the labor force right at this point. This creates an imbalance with men holding 62% of manager level positions and women just 38%. So even as hiring and promotion rates improve for women at senior levels, women as a whole can never really catch up because there are simply too few women to advance. Last slide, Mark. So we need to work harder and dig deeper to implement systemic change. As Jenny Ellen discussed this week as part of the explanation of the anemic jobs report, nearly 2 million have not yet returned. The challenge before us is to help these 2 million women return to the labor market. And I think that the real question is, can we afford to not develop the latent female potential in the labor pool? 
So I think that we have a case here for forced interventions to change the system of work to solve for these issues. And some of the ways that we can have a forced intervention is by solving the child care crisis. Another is by implementing workplace flexibility. Flexible work is one of the most powerful ways to systematically equalize the playing field between women, men and women at work, period. An improvement of hiring and promotion mandates. Obviously, there's an increase needed in funding for female-founded and led companies and creating a culture of mentorship and allyship. These are just five examples of forced interventions that can prove for a new system. So what is your call to action? What systematic change are you committing to in the decisions that you make? So how do you use the privilege of your position and power? Not only is that an amazing alliteration, but it's also a personal call to action. So how do you move closer to the center of change, not just for the women in your immediate orbit, but the ones that you see from a distance? Where and how do you invest your time, energy, and capital in funds, companies, and projects that are directly leading change, the charge towards the systematic change that we need? And one idea is to audit your actions and to look at the gender differentials on where you place your capital and hold these companies to a higher standard. So that's what I have on the future is female, slightly different perspective, but I hope that it gives a different lens and provides more depth and context to the immediacy of the problem and ways that we can solve it. Thank you very much, Denise. Thank you for your perspective. As always, very refreshing and uh, you're providing a different framework, as you said, the futuristic framework to our issues. And um, uh, Gary, you are the next, and uh, you had three brilliant speakers. It will be a real difficult task for you to get up to their speed, but please uh, help us understand how we can look at uh, all the issues which we heard today uh, from the perspective of the governments, from the perspective of the um, of the uh, more research, of research side uh, of uh, the future of work. No, absolutely. Thank you, Simon. So, uh, so absolutely, I feel uh, completely unqualified to talk about uh, women and the future of work. Um, I often say that whenever you try to understand uh, nascent growth markets, uh, you shouldn't listen to someone who speaks for the trees. Uh, you should talk to the trees and the women who spoken so far today are, as far as I'm concerned, uh, towering trees that you should listen to. But I'm very passionate about this arena, so I'm sure I used an inappropriate amount of whining so I could offer a few thoughts here uh, and be included uh, in the panel. So, so I know that many of those watching are investors and advisors who are constantly looking for underinvested categories. And I just want to offer both some historical perspective looking back and then some you know, maybe futuristic perspective looking forward. But basically, uh, 40 years ago, I moved to Silicon Valley and I began pointing to the range of opportunities that I thought would be created as technology would transform industries and markets and economies. And then 20 years ago, I became obsessed with what I called uh, accelerating the flow of capital, the good, how you could get 
as much money in the world to want to have a positive impact. And with several partners operating as a nonprofit called Collective Intelligence, we pushed for ideas like that business with a purpose would help to transform a variety of industries, that clients of high net worth advisory would be pounding the table for opportunities for impact investing, and that uh, CIOs at foundations would eventually be investing their corporate in impact. And with my partners, I co-founded something called SOCAP, Social Capital Markets, which was the, it become the largest gathering of impact investors and uh, impact investments on the planet. So today, I'm telling you that one of the most significant shifts that we can anticipate over the next 20 years is to see women as an investment class. Not, not in a creepy, ex extractive way, but in a way that is going to transform markets. Now, as Anissa just pointed out, you already know that we are at a pivot point in the shift in the world of, of work. We're rewriting the rules of work as we speak. As a matter of fact, tiny commercial, but I think we're gonna emerge from this period with what I call the next rules of work. And that's actually a title of a book I've got coming out in August. And the reason I point to that is I think there's sort of three legs of the stool. And those three legs of the stool are actually extraordinarily useful ways to think about this investment class as an opportunity. I think the previous speakers have made it very, very clear. They've both highlighted the problem domain, which is that there are so many different aspects of the world of work and business that women have the potential to transform and yet don't have access to the capital, access to the boardroom, and so on. But there's a solution domain, and that's to accelerate the flow of capital into this arena. And the three legs of the stool that I want to point to are mindset, skill set and tool set. Now, as Alexander said, you need an investor mindset that women as an asset class are an under leveraged opportunity. That is the mental framework that allows you to approach these, this variety of different opportunities in terms of investment. As if there is a delta, this is, is clearly, there is a delta between what could be accomplished by these businesses and these investment opportunities if they had more access to capital and more mentoring and support. But it's a mindset, it's a new filter or lens that's necessary to approach this. Secondly, there's an investor skill set. How will you build the network and the diligence processes that will help you to identify and then fund women-owned co companies businesses that are meeting the needs of women as customers and consumers as the very nature of work changes. And also balancing the table of power in the C-suite in the boardroom to ensure that the organization of the future has the inclusive and diverse mindset and skill set that it needs to build successful businesses. And then finally, the third leg of the stool is tool set. What investment techniques and technologies can you leverage to deliver the risk adjustment metrics that you need to justify this new investment thesis so you can leap ahead of your competitors to gain all the advantages of investing now in this rapidly emerging asset class? So what I'm suggesting is you take the long view. There's all sorts of near-term opportunities to very tactically and rapidly 
start focusing on this as an asset class, but take the long view. You, if you look back 40 years, you, you, you don't need me to convince you now to invest in technology. Pretty soon, you won't need anyone to convince you to invest in impact. I look forward to the day when investing with a gender lens will no longer be an issue. Nobody's going to have to convince anybody that supporting women in business and women as the future of work is simply sound investment strategy. But we're a long way from that today. So my three suggestions for you, expand your mindset to include the fact that women are the future of work and business, develop the skill set to identify those investments and increase the flow of capital to this arena, and leverage the tool set that will help you to reap the benefits of investing in women as the future of work. Thanks a lot. Gary, thank you very much for your passion and for your wisdom. Uh, to summarize this section of our deep dive, I would just want to say that uh, all of us probably experience the situation that everybody is talking about the issues, uh, everybody organizes book clubs, but very few people um, undertake any actions. And our today's um, deep panel is this call to action, not in the sense uh, that let's do something, but in the sense um, of very specific objective, let's identify the businesses and business opportunities which can benefit from our input, from our investments. Let's share them and let's put at least a little bit uh, of our money in the causes which can help um, this um, trends to accelerate and uh, maybe help uh, young women to get more comfortable in the workplace in the leadership positions. And it can be, uh, we probably need mentors, both men and women who will try to help them, not only with money, but also with our experience, with our connections. And uh, let's be active. Let's uh, have the next panel where we will bring our favorite startups, which will demonstrate uh, their ability to solve this issue. And uh, then uh, we will actually be different from those who just talk. Uh, and hopefully the talk is cheap, but investments will be profitable. And with this... Uh, I'm giving uh, the mic back to Denise. Denise, please uh, start the panel. Thank you. Sure. So we can um, have an interlude here with some Q&A, or we can go directly to our last few speakers. Simon, do you have a preference? Denise, uh, my preference is to satisfy the needs of the audience. Uh, okay. If people feel comfortable uh, listen to more information, that's great. If people feel that uh, we have to discuss some issues, it's great again. Uh, okay. the, the more engagement we have, the better it is. Okay, then how about this? Let's go to our last few speakers, and there are some really excellent questions coming through in the chat that we can address towards the end, so we'll reserve some time for that. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the keynote speakers uh, and all the thoughts that we had and it gave a real good illumination of the multidimensional aspect that is the potential for the future's female women at work. 
I'm really excited to introduce you to our next two panelists. Um, Heather Henyon is a founding partner in Mindshift Capital, and she is actively investing globally in female-led companies. So when we talk about the fact that there's a lot of money left in the table, not in her firm, and I'm very interested for you to hear her perspective on how she sees the issue and the topic. And then we'll be very closely followed by Valerie for her perspective on the same issue. So, Heather, if you would like to take it away from here. And I just want to point out it's ironic or elegant that they're both in Dubai. <laughs> the, the, the leaders of gender across the world, right, in Dubai. So not what one would expect, I don't think. Um, so thank you, Denise, and thank you to the whole group for having me here today. Uh, I'm actually going to – can I share my screen directly, Mark? Um, so, uh, just as you know, I've been introduced. I've been investing in women-led companies now for the last eight or nine years. I think probably since about 2012 was my first investment in a woman-led um, startup and in technology, and now have invested in over 100 early-stage technology companies, uh, primarily based in the U.S., Middle East, and Europe, and started the Women's Angel Investor Network, Wayne, in 2013. We made our first investment in 2014 and invested what we call with a gender lens. So, for those who aren't familiar with gender lens, we define that as um, one female founder, at least, or co-founder who's also active on the in the business, so the day-to-day kind of operational um, part of the business. And when we started at Wayne, we weren't sure kind of what the the results would be, but we found that there was a massive demand. And this was only Middle East-based companies, by the way, so this was not a global um, mandate at the time. And just the number of companies, you know, that were looking for capital founded by women who didn't make it into the, I would say, conventional investment networks and circles, we were we were blown away by. And the quality as well. So we weren't sure are these kind of, you know, unscalable cupcake types of uh, businesses, lifestyle businesses that don't really qualify for venture capital or angel investment. But these were actually primarily technology companies. So that that was my I'd say entree into gender lens investing. And since then, you know, I became involved with a, a number of other groups and over and over again, these are mainly angel groups. I saw the same challenge that was described earlier. So a lot of these female founders could raise money at seed, but getting the next round of capital in from institutions was, was very challenging for them. Um, and so that really was part of my motivation in setting up Mindshift Capital. So Mindshift is a, a global uh, venture fund. We invest in early stage women-led tech companies. We do have, I would say, strong networks in the Middle East and, and U.S. because of our Dubai-based presence and our, our team. Um, we have invested in one company in Singapore, so I'll describe more about the portfolio and some of the kinds of companies that, that we're seeing. Our team is women-led, so primarily we've got one guy on the team, so <laughs> he's our token uh, token partner, but otherwise uh, we're women-led because we also believe that we can relate more to the female founders who we're backing. So um, a bunch of us have been investing together for a number of years in various angel groups and came together to set up MindShift. 
Um, so while we're focused on, on gender, our fund thesis is also quite strong. We did our first close in February 2020, right before COVID. The sectors that we focus on are food tech, fintech, edtech, health and wellness tech. And, you know, obviously we didn't predict COVID, but those were all the sectors that were accelerated by, by COVID and by the pandemic. Um, and, you know, part of this is because we see these different shifts occurring across the world. So obviously one is related to gender, but then also the, for example, the shift we see in food. There's a massive shift towards veganism, clean eating, healthy um, wellness focus that we see pervasive in different markets and not just in the U.S., but, for example, in Dubai, we see it. We see the, the shift occurring over the last you know, five years, I would say. And that was part of why we decided to focus on these sectors. These are also the sectors where we see more female founders. And so, again, we don't believe that there's a pipeline problem. We're actually inundated by deal flow and would love to back more of these women. We actually just we struggle with raising capital, just like uh, founders of startups do. Again, our, um, I think, you know, we're a nice example of some of the data points that Alex was sharing earlier. Uh, we've backed now nine companies that are all women led and our returns have been excellent. We did our first fund audit for the year, you know, by Frank Wimmerman and co out of, um, San Francisco and they validated our IRR of 47%, 1.6 increase in, in, uh, value in terms of multiples. Um, and again, you know, our thesis is really based on the fact that we're we're actually intentionally backing companies where there is money left on the table. So we're able to come in and support and invest in the companies that struggle to raise capital because we relate to the businesses that they're building. We're often the customers of their products, you know, just as a mother and someone who's got um, children using a lot of these these educational apps, I can opine directly on my board roles where I'm the only one, you know, on the board who's actually using a product, you know, so it's, I'm, it's a big differentiation, I think, in how we support founders and companies compared to my male counterparts. Uh, this is our portfolio, so I won't spend a lot of time uh, going through this, but just wanted to highlight a couple that I think are really interesting and, and really doing revolutionary things. One is a company called Shiok Meats out of Singapore, two stem cell scientists, uh, one Indian woman and then one Singaporean woman. And basically they've, they're creating shrimp and lobster as well out of, um, cells. So they don't, there's no slaughter of an animal. There's no, uh, there's no water used as well. So in terms of all the SDGs and impact and ESG, we don't position ourselves as an impact fund, but a, a lot of the founders that we back, I would say, are impact businesses um, because uh, this company probably ticks like five of the UN SDGs. Just um, so uh, so amazing company, you know, a lot of a lot of scale for this kind of business into food scarce markets. And obviously now with COVID, you know, around supply chain, all you need is a lab to grow this shrimp. So, uh, so we're, we're really excited about being in this, um, this company and the lead investor for this series A round was Aquaspark, which is a Dutch fund led by Amy Novogratz. Um, some of you may know. Another business that we really like as well and, you know, very, interesting in kind of the femtech market, which is completely underinvested and 
we're seeing more and more capital going to these kinds of companies, but I'm just, you know, I keep telling <laughs> our team members, it's crazy that we're still using the same, you know, OBGYN tools that our mothers and grandmothers, you know, had to use. And they're pretty much like medieval instruments, but then we have a new iPhone every three months. So again, you know, <laughs> what are the drivers of this? Right. So, um, and who's, who's in the driving seat, I think is the question. Um, but we know that there's massive need for these kinds of businesses. So NX prenatal is actually the first non-invasive blood test that can be done to during um, pregnancy, between weeks 10 and 12 of pregnancy, to predict whether a baby will be born prematurely and the mother will get preeclampsia. So there's there's a lot of interest in this because all the other tests are invasive and have other health risks for the mother and the baby. Um, but, you know, this is something that is really revolutionary. Again, what shocks me about a business like this, and if you talk to, the, uh, to Gail, who's the executive chair of the company um she just says see, they can't raise capital because uh because all the investors are men and they just say well the babies aren't dying so why does it matter a baby's born early what's the big deal but there's so so much research and information showing that basically these um babies when they're born prematurely develop all kinds of um issues later on linked to immunity um, diseases and in markets like UAE and Saudi, uh, 50% of the babies are actually born prematurely, which is the highest in the world. And part of why they were interested in Mindshift coming in as an investor. Um, and then uh, in countries like Jordan and Tunisia, the um, highest rate and cause of child mortality is due to premature infant birth. So there's clear health risks, you know, that just because a baby isn't dying doesn't mean that there aren't other challenges, plus costs, right? The cost to the health system of putting babies in NICU and finding beds is a big challenge. So, again, something revolutionary that we, we're backing. We believe it also, this is an impact company, but it's not how we position it. And again, we, we need a massive revolution in the way that we think about investing and where we put our capital. So that's that's part of the mind shift that really needs to occur, both for women and for men. Mark, I'm conscious of time, so I'm not going to go through everything. I think a lot of the data points were covered. Uh, the only thing that I wanted to highlight is that, you know, sometimes we as women-led uh, venture capital funds are referred to as an endangered species because there really aren't many female GPs. If you look at the even the number of partners now at at some of the venture capital funds in the U.S., it's improving. I think now we're at like 10 to 12 percent. But if you look at founding partners, it's still 2 percent. So the, the amount of capital that's going to women, I think, is really linked to that. So, again, the 2 percent of capital goes to all women teams. You know, less than 15 percent goes to diverse teams, which means 85 percent of capital is going to all white male teams, which is crazy in 2021. And yeah, and sorry, just the other data point I wanted to share around that is that if a female founder goes to a venture capital fund where there's at least one woman partner, she's three times as likely to get funded. So my feeling, you know, is that the more women VCs, the more women fund managers that we can back and and kind of seed and get off the grounds, you know, the, um, the, we also increase the, the likelihood that women founders will also re- receive capital. So we change both sides of the table 
by supporting the fund managers who are women? There are a bunch of angel groups that are now. Heather, I think we do need to help. Okay, yeah. So I'll I'll pause there. I mean, I'm happy to share more material and information. These are my contact details. Um, But, yeah, thank you again for having me and look forward to any questions. Denise, can I just one? She mentioned prenatal had golden seeds as an early investor. If if you're not familiar with it, uh, that's my lawyer set up the Arizona chapter, and I've been to their meetings, Loretta McCarthy and others. So it's it's another great way to catalyze um, this, as you saw. Sorry, Karen. Yeah, Heather, that excellent presentation. Um, love putting the data and the action together to the results that you're seeing. And I think that, um, Mark, a great idea might be post this event to share all the links of the presentations with people. I think that people are getting a lot from it. And I think, Heather, for sure, we want to share out your information. You also have an app. Oh, my bad. My bad. See you all in the app. Um, so we have one of our last speakers lined up, and then I actually have a question for somebody in the audience, but I'd like to introduce you to Valerie Hawley. And Valerie has an extraordinary background, but I think is equally as extraordinary is the fact that Valerie herself had actually left the workforce a number of years, prioritizing the balancing of her family, but came back in to grow a hugely successful career. So I'm very interested in how that happened, the difficulties and challenges. You can get an idea for the use case of the fact that this can happen and it can happen well. And possibly the other counterpoint is I'm not sure if Valerie and I are on the same page about the future as female. Clearly, I'm on one end of the spectrum, and I love the counterpoint because nothing more valuable to getting to the root of an issue than seeing a counterpoint. So, Valerie, I'd love for you to introduce us into your background and possibly address those two questions. You're on yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry. Thank you, Denise, for this uh, introduction, and thank you, uh, thank you to all of you to have me. Uh, I'm probably a good use case of all what has been uh, said so far, as many of uh, as many of us. Uh, but uh, yes, I'm uh, educated. I left uh, I left uh, education quite late, and then went into the workforce, and I was actually um, at KPMG. Uh, manager at the manager level and uh, had my children quite late because I wanted to uh, be final, financially independent because uh, women ne- needed to have their independence and needed to have some uh, ambition and uh, a strong uh, professional path. And uh, I left uh, KPMG to actually uh, uh, raise my children because I think that was very, very important to me. I didn't want uh, I, I didn't want to leave that to anybody else because at the end of the day I think uh, that uh, women are biologically programmed for the survival of the species. They are programmed to transmit, and uh, that's what I wanted to do. And even if I was really ambitious and uh, career orientated, I decided that I was uh, I was going to do that, and uh, and thought that it would be easy to go back. Uh, to the professional life. Unfortunately, that was actually very difficult. I think um, it came from two facts. The first thing is that uh, I have always been, uh, I have a scientific background. I've always been in a very male environment, uh, working in the automotive industry, in the management consulting, where very few women were, were employed at the time. And I think uh, we uh, we uh, we grow with uh, with less self confidence than our counterpart male, 
And so it was a program of perhaps me lacking some self-confidence and uh, thinking that I needed to uh, to prove myself. I needed to demonstrate quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of skills. And uh, basically, after five years of raising my children, and um, I uh, I uh, went back at the bottom of the ladder. I, uh, I started being a teaching assistant in a school here in Dubai and um, and uh, had different jobs where I found always that I was completely overqualified and uh, not absolutely not uh, satisfied with the level of uh, of responsibility I was given and uh, and uh, basically being completely bored. So I, in a way, decided to to uh, build my own company and started to be an entrepreneur. And uh, I think that's also uh, this difficulty to go back into the workforce that pushed me of uh, being an entrepreneur and demonstrating my uh, my talent and making sure that I had the I had the I had the space to uh, to be who I was and to raise as I wanted. And it was quite a lot of uh, so I had to retrain. I then uh, was uh, not such a successful entrepreneur, so I went back to uh, HSA in Paris and um, to uh, look out for the for uh, sectors that was going to be uh, the sectors of the future, and we trained in uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, and then managed to slowly go back onto the the ladder of work. But it was very difficult, definitely. Um, I think. Uh, I think so. What I would have liked at the time is probably um, I would have uh, liked that uh, the ability to be uh, to have flexible hours and to not be um, to have at the same time the ability to raise my children and have a part-time job with the same kind of responsibility that I used to have, not having to be downgraded uh, to lower responsibility because I didn't spend the same amount of time at work. Um, I would have liked to have the same kind of promotion, and that's what you were referring to, uh, Denise, before. Uh, but saying that, I think uh, I think uh, the future of work, as you uh, as we are going to see it uh, after COVID, is going to bring this kind of flexibility. I think we are because everybody has been working from home. We are we are also um, very much. Um, on an outcome-based objective rather than time-based objective. We have flexible workplaces, we have flexible hours. I think also um, the fact that uh, lifelong learning is coming into uh, into play where we will have um, more fragmented uh, pathway, where we will have to retrain, where we will have to change completely our skills set and uh, change again will be in favor of uh, women workforce. And I think that will be, uh, I mean, the other side of it is obviously that uh, the roles of, uh, we have so many roles and so many expectations that are attached to our different roles. We are our mother, we are our wife, we are our partner, we are our friend. We also need to take care of our self-development. So all these expectations are very, uh, are putting a lot of pressure. But I think more and more male are also uh, sharing the chores, are sharing this, uh, this role, some of these roles. And uh, by sharing all that, I think we can, uh, we can uh, be sure that uh, the, the woman will have a, a better future than perhaps our generation. I mean, when I look at my, at my uh, daughters, they are very assertive. I have pushed them, but I think uh, I have pushed them to learn science and to be in STEM. 
and I think, uh, but they have grown with a very strong sense of uh, of self, and I think that's great. Um, I think what here in the Middle East we see a lot of uh, women that are uh, that are very confident. I mean, that's uh, the slide that uh, I think Alex shows uh, 90 or perhaps Susan shows that 90% of the 92% of Emirati women are very ambitious because they have jumped on the education. They have been the first one to to be wanting to be educated. And uh, they are very well, very well respected in the workplace. They are very well, um, uh, they are very empowered. I think also in terms of uh, society, they have an easier, an easier life than many other nationality because here you have, uh, you have uh, people around, you have staff at home that can help you with, uh, with many of the other chores. Um, but I think uh, this uh, this um, gender equality is actually coming through in the in the in the education system in the way that we are in the um, the way we are educating our children and how assertive they are coming. Um, I also think, I mean, as as uh, as I said before, I think the fact that the topics are getting uh, more longer term, that we're talking about climate change, that are talking about erasing poverty, these long term challenges are more in in sync, I think, with the way women think, uh, because the women are again, I think, they are very much uh, here to to uh, to ensure the survival of uh, the human species uh, and they have a much longer term uh, vision than uh, compared to more immediate uh, considerations that uh, men can have and uh, we have seen companies uh, with very short term uh, um, KPIs of the managers being uh, being um, being evaluated on a quarterly basis and uh, I think this is uh, this is uh, changing I think uh, uh, when the, the industrial revolution needed physical strength, so they needed uh, the, male, the male strength. I think we don't need that anymore. It's more uh, the power of the brain. And I think uh, the, same, uh, the same education and the women have, uh, have a big role to play. And you can see it in, uh, in biotech, in healthcare, as, uh, as um, Eva was saying. Uh, I think you, you see more and more women uh, funding uh, companies and um, to, to solve problems related to women, but also uh, to uh, bigger issues. Ellie, that's fantastic. Very, very much appreciate your perspective on that. Um, really valuable putting all these conversations together. Uh, we're going to move just a little ahead here onto some Q&A because we are almost at time. And actually, before we I do... Will- Denise, sorry, I just have one thing to say because, uh, I mean, it was a lot about the, the subject of uh, not many females as a GP in the VC industry. So I'm part of a fund, a global fund that has uh, 40 partners and 20% of us are actually women. Uh, so we don't always find the, the, the right, uh, the right uh, companies that have a woman to invest in, but at least uh, we are pushing for that, definitely. Awesome. Thanks, Valerie. Um, we're gonna. I got a couple of very good questions in the Q and A here that I want to address. If you fo- folks can hang on for an extra couple of minutes before we get to the actual Q and A, I do actually have a question for somebody that sits in our audience. Um, Lisa, I know that you've had some 
real life experience of fundraising and you are an owner of a co-working company in the city and you've been through this process yourself. So this is now not theoretical. This is actual real life use case. I'd love to, if you have a couple of thoughts and comments on what it has been, your experience has been fundraising to fill the pipeline that we, the very one we just discussed. <laughs> well, thank you, Denise, for, for bringing me to the, to the uh, stage, so to speak. Um, really appreciate this talk. I think just in and of itself, the fact that we're devoting time, thank you to all of the men who've shown up, you know, for this panel, because otherwise we're women sort of talking into a, a vacuum, you know, to ourselves here, I think, in the world. And so I think for me, um, I am the CEO and, and co-founder uh, with two male co-founders, one who was with me at WeWork in the very beginning. I opened the first two locations. Um, I've been uh, CEO of the company for six years and uh, we've raised about $10 million. I absolutely spearheaded that effort. Um, I have been almost exclusively surrounded by men, I would say, at the highest level at you know, negotiating leases, 10 men at the table and myself. Um, it's been a really eye-opening experience, really, for me as a, as a founder and owner. And so it's why I put into the comments here, I think that I'm a very much a, I'm a I'm a positive, optimistic, relentlessly resilient person. I think by nature, and thanks, mom, you know the, my upbringing. But I think that so I give people the benefit of the doubt, and I think that men, and it's what I put into the comments here. It really starts with the education. I think you know uh, just again coming onto this panel and recognizing that there are blind spots. You know where men asking themselves, I think day in and day out. Where can I intentionally be caused in the matter of listening to this woman more, um, get, providing an opportunity for a woman to rise? I mean, I think just on a very basic level is where is where it starts. And so, um, you know, I, I could talk for a half hour on this. I, I do think it's, it's with women also. <laughs> I did have a recent uh, experience you know, with a woman who I thought I could trust and then undermine me also. So I'm, I'm now cognizant of the fact that it's not always gender, sort of some of the bias, you know, that are, that are out there also. But I do think that um, just men being men in particular who are in power, being allies and advocates is really where it starts. So just an acknowledgement to all the, the men who have uh, come you know, into the discussion here today. Lisa, uh, that's all. Thank you for your contribution there. And look, I agree with you. Uh, the only way you're going to solve for any form of a challenge at women at work is by having a non-gendered conversation. Otherwise, the conversation is circular and goes back into the system that just caused the difficulties to begin with. So on that point, major shout out to Mark and Simon for embracing this topic. I have a really good feeling that this is not going to be the last of the conversation. So I wanted to get to a couple of questions. There's a lot of questions in there. We're not going to get to all of them. Um, perhaps we'll use this. We'll use the ones you don't get to tee up the next conversation. But Heather, I have a question for you that came in. Um, clearly, clearly, we need more women investors to tackle the problem. But women face the compound challenge of access and investing when raising first-time funds. What advice can you offer to women first-time fund managers entering the VC space? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question and it's a problem that we've also faced as well. So I think I don't have a good answer for that. I think just be prepared for it to take a while. <laughs> so it, you know, as our team members always say, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, and I guess I'm just kind of blindly faithful that as you develop your track record, attribution, returns, you know, it will just become obvious. And I think what 
Gary was saying about not having to use a gender lens to just, you know, it being kind of an obvious um, solution that we don't need to look at women as a separate asset class, but really uh, once the capital's there, once the returns are obvious, it will be like almost a no brainer to be backing them. So um, we won't need to, to do all this ex- extra kind of marketing promotion and, um, activist, you know, kind of investment techniques that we use now, but it's not for the faint of heart. And I think that's again why there aren't that many women GPs because uh, we didn't talk so much about unconscious bias, but I think that's a key, key um, issue here. So, um, mm-hmm. and I guess maybe, sorry, Mark. My comment was I had this conversation over the weekend with Heather is, is it, it's on us or, or allies. But we, we're just lazy. Uh, right. It is. It's, we're just, I don't want to, you know, we have to, we have to, you know, it's just like I'm going to do this a bit in Ohio. People fly over Ohio, but we need, it's not in our immediate vicinity, although I'm trying to buy, uh, my wife's a Googler and all the rest. So I'm, I'm drinking from the, from the Kool-Aid, but, uh, I just think, and I want to, we want to, and anybody has other people like Heather, we want to meet Heathers of the world. At least 361 does. <laughs> And at least, you know, while we're here, because soon we'll be literally on Mars. That's a, that's a typical Simon Vine comment. You get used to it. <laughs> yeah, Mars are from, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and now it becomes a reality. Oh, I see. The, I'm late to the gesture. Okay. Denise, carry on. And there's no deadline here. All right, so one of the kind of related question we have is how can you promote ex- exits for women funded companies and founded companies with such a value opportunity to buy lower seeking out women led companies there are also needs to be more opportunities to exit and generate return anybody have any comments on or thoughts on that question Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, private equity, that the old saying is, you know, if private equity is like a burning room, you, you have to know your exit before you get in. And um, and I think certainly with our investments and with the projects that I'm involved in, we have exits for investors from the get-go. So they have to understand when they're going to be able to exit. And generally, because uh, these projects involve patients, these are not quick fixes, they exit in five years, say, but there are exit programs that are installed from the very beginning. Otherwise, I don't think that we would uh, capture that audience. Thanks, Susan. And actually, a question that came in earlier in the chat, way earlier in the chat for you was a question on the stats that you presented on Africa and a reconciliation between, which I thought was surprising, that Africa leads in representation of females on boards, yet has quite a low VC rate comparable to the U.S. How do you reconcile both of those trends, or is there a way to do that? Um, I think that there is, um, it's quite hard to reconcile that, because that fact is quite a shock, as a matter of fact. But when one looks at operating in Africa, it's notable that women are, first of all, very vocal. Educated women are extremely vocal in Africa. And um, when you attend any kind of gatherings of businesses in Africa, you will see that there is generally a pretty substantial audience of females. 
um, depending on what you're doing. I mean, when I'm operating a project on the ground, then it is much like what some of the women have just discussed. I am one of the only women there. But when I'm at a business conference, it is there are you know quite a few women. They're very vocal, and there is um, uh, a I know that very low numbers of women go to university, very low numbers of Africans go to university, as a matter of fact, compared to the rest of the world. But um, there seems to be a lot of <clears throat> power, <coughs> excuse me, with the people that do go in running these companies globally, excuse me. <coughs> and so what we're seeing is the educated masses that are running the large companies. And they are women and men. Sorry, I've got to get Thanks, Susan. Sorry. Go ahead, Mark. No, it's all good. That usually happens to Stephen Burke, but that happens. <laughs> Sorry, that doesn't usually She's taking the torch from. So, I, you know, the presentation I gave, I, I really do focus on the why, because, again, I really think that if we can nail that down, the real reasons of the why, because we have the tools, technology, there's capital, there's interest, there's supply, there's demand, but the question is why. And there's one interesting comment here from Lauren. I'm having visions of commentators on certain, certain media outlets who would say this meeting is too woke. Probably not enough time, but would love to know how the women business leaders on this call push back against that type of mindset. So love the question because I think that we're unearthing another dimension of the why. But can you just explain to me a little bit more what you mean by that? And then I'm sure there's plenty of people on the call that would like to give an answer. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the thing of it is we always, I, I, I think, in discussions like this, we always try to, you could say, make sure that we're not diving into what you would call political discussions. But it definitely seems like that this is a new theme that is being you know, pushed in, in certain, you know, in certain quarters, so to speak, that, you know, what companies and what people who are involved in business are supposed to be doing is just thinking strictly about their bottom line, right? And that anything that they do is not even supposed to, you know, come close to something that would be affecting, you could say, the social dynamic of, you know, of what we're, of what we're doing. And so, you know, especially Heather's presentation, Right. I could definitely see, you know, and, and, and they've used this, 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 they've seized on this word woke, which is, I guess, a millennial term. Right. Uh, you know, as a way, as a way of kind of characterizing this idea of, um, I guess, this overreach and particularly like Heather's uh, presentation. You know, you could see, you know, some pushback on, on, on in, in this way. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what do you, Denise and Heather, you know, what do some of the, you know, the women who have been in these environments where, you know, there are not enough female, you know, females at the table, you know, how do you push back against this kind of thing? That's just what I'm, you know, that's what I'm wondering. We, we just used Sorry that. that took so long. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think uh, you're totally right, Lauren. I mean, we, we, we just quote data points all the time because to me, that's the only thing that's going to change mindsets. You know, when, especially when you're talking to investors, like it doesn't always result in change, but I, you can't argue with numbers often, right? So uh, the more data points you can show, and it does feel a little bit like insanity that we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, which is part of why we wanted to set up a new model like MindShift where 
where, you know, we keep hearing objections. Oh, we don't have women on our team because uh, there aren't enough of them. Women don't understand finance. They don't understand numbers. They're not quantitative. And, and I used to believe that as well myself. During my business school education, um, I just thought I'm the only woman in the room because I'm not, women aren't good at numbers. But then I started seeing through my kids that, uh, and I've actually got two sons. So it's, um, but seeing the girls in their, even at a very young age, the girls outperformed in science and math. We see that in the Middle East all the time. The outperformers and the strong candidates coming out of the engineering schools and computer science um, programs are women. So I used I used to do I used to uh, be in a reading mentoring program, and a lot of times I would find the girls were were in there sneaking doing their math homework. <laughs> half the, really half the time I'd walk by and I'd look and wait what are you what that's a math book. <laughs> You're supposed to be doing that. You're a girl. <laughs> well, I mean, in the reading mentor class, you know, I I, I almost wanted to yeah. I almost wanted to switch and say, hey, look, maybe I should be tutoring math in this because that's what they seem to be interested in. I want to add two quick points there, and then perhaps we'll open up because I have some questions for the gentleman in the room um, in response to that. Lauren, is that even though I've grown up around strong women my whole life, and I just younger assumed everyone was like that some of them in my life were strong because they had to be others because they wanted to be my but mother ran her own business for 35 years so i just really my jaws on the table with a lot of this and i think another comment that i made that that i made that i would want to share is this idea of just you know outdated gender roles you know why is it that the men are the aggressive competitive ones and the women are supposed to be the nurturing compet you know cooperative ones I mean, that's like, that's some 1960 stuff if, I am, if I've never heard it, you know. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right there. Um, the, the idea, if you were asking me to repeat what a feminist is, I couldn't tell you. That's a word I never absorbed. I could never describe what it actually is. But recently I kind of heard the phrase and the term humanist, and I was like, wow, well, that fits like a glove. Because at the end of the day, we're all human. And we're 99% the same. We're just so marginally different. And the conversation piece around focusing on what makes us different, you have to climb out of a hole to get to a common point. So I look at everything as humanism and being a humanist. So I lived for for over 20 years in Europe, and I literally can say that I have experienced pretty much every form of life you could live in the western world from sleeping on the street to you know being like in villas overlooking you know the the beautiful land and i will have to say that's the one thing i've come away from that experience i can say without fear of contradiction people are 98 percent 97 percent the same what they want they all want to be able to take care of their families you know, know that what they're doing with their life has some, you know, meaning or value to it, really. And what makes us different is literally like, you know, what kind of food we like, you know. Yeah, it's a powerful position to come on, to come at it from our common points. And the other point I want to make here is that being, I think like a futurist has a lot to do with looking at the past. And when I step out and I look historically at the, the, the U.S. is a very, very young country relative to many other medieval European countries. And look what this country has done in 250-odd years. So my perspective is not that there is people, a bunch of guys in pinstripe suits sitting around the table cackling, holding women down in the workforce. Perhaps it may 
in the 60s, maybe, but not now. I think this is just a natural evolution of the country and our population and how we work together. And women, for sure, have passed values down from family to family and generation to generation, but something's changing. And I think that the future of work is a female, and from the point of view that I think it's up to women to actually step in and role model what it is to be human at work over these next coming decades in the world of work. I think it's responsibility upon us. And I'm interested in this conversation that maps out that ecosystem that brings that to life and makes that a real thing sooner rather than later so that we can leave less money and opportunity on the table. So with that, I know we're almost at a quarter past one. I just had a really good, uh, interesting question for the gentlemen in the room that are hearing this information. It might seem some, maybe it's new, maybe it's high level, maybe it's provocative, but what is your what is your reaction to what you've heard today in terms of the future is female? Do you think the future is female? Can we get there? Would love to know, get some uh, input. Yeah, I just had a couple of thoughts on that, Denise. Thank you. Uh, this has been a great presentation. Um, you know, I grew up in my grandparents' house, mostly when I was uh, young in India, and I had a grandmother who was just a force of nature. She just was a wonderful woman. Um, and then, I, you know, that, that experience, along with the fact that she raised her daughters and sons, at the same focus on studying, and, and that's proven out. My uncles and aunts have similar uh, sets of achievements. My aunts actually have done, and my mother has done more than, than my uncles have. Um, but, but you know, I, I think the key to having men, as Mark was saying earlier, focus more, because we, we get distracted and get tunnel vision, and we, we don't see the obvious in front of our face sometimes, is to actively tell us when we're not doing something. So, so for example, Lisa um, Sky told me when our cannabis panel was too many men <laughs> a few months ago. Well, to be fair, it was only men. Uh, and we just like, like, I can't even post this. Right? Yep. It was embarrassing to post. And, and that led to an outreach and led to really, really great women and minority speakers at the event. And that's become kind of a model now for future events. But I just want to say, I also have a five-year-old daughter and I have to say that I actively involve myself in women-focused events so that I can, along with my wife, of course, you know, translate that to more actionable items in parenting. Um, so the, the, the math part came up, for example, she's great at math. She loves numbers. She plays with numbers. I think sometimes women have that feeling because just like they're asked to plan family events and, and all sorts of, you know, activities, they're not asked to do math. <laughs> and so women not being good at math, part of math is repetition, is an old attitude that existed, I think, partly because men were asked to do the, the math and the taxes and, and the financial budgeting and everything, and, and women were not. I think those things have changed drastically uh, from, from the prior generation. So I'm just really grateful to see that this, this group and the speakers that are involved in, in uh, it was very, very uh, educational. So thank you. I, I think um, maybe a little differently. I think this is an, a great topic, but I think it's catching up because I think it's already a fait accompli. Um, you know, Columbia University's uh, School of Engineering uh, class is over 50% women. Uh, and, um, and I know uh, people uh, such as myself and such as Anad just spoke um, you know, we are uh, very much encouraging our daughters uh, to uh, uh, track along a, a, a path. And, you know, to brag for half a second, my daughter's a, finishing her junior year in high school and has completed 
the most complex math that you can take in high school and is taking a class this summer at Harvard in multivariable calculus, which friends of mine who tutor uh, 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 say, boy, that's, that's really pretty advanced. Uh, and I think that children, women today, uh, really have as role models um, uh, an awful lot of, of awareness of what their opportunities are. There, there are plenty of strong women professionally that they see uh, that uh, act as role models, um, at least in my, uh, in, in my situation. I think the challenge <clears throat> perhaps, and we've talked about this uh, a lot, you know, being able to spread across socioeconomic uh, 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 classes. Uh, and so my, my daughter um, is uh, uh, very well, I think, positioned um, by having uh, people like me or an odd, your daughter, by having a person like you uh, encourage her. And it's the people that, the women that don't have the advantages of a person like me or a person like an odd uh, to encourage them. That, you know, that, that's the real challenge. I think that's the real effort. Uh, and I think that's the, the maybe, maybe an underserved focus of how to create opportunities, awareness, um, uh, platforms uh, to to rise, give rise to you know that you know, that entire opportunity. Uh, I, I think you know the, the women on this program very accomplished. Uh, oh. you know, Abby Johnson was in my section of business school, right? Very accomplished. But Jim, uh, just because I know you personally have more degrees than I'll ever. Anybody on here? I mean, you're you're very educated. Uh, we're, we're, our children are lucky. I mean, let me raise it from parenting to back to what 361 can do because we want to. I know that you're looking for good returns at the same time, and if Heather can give it to you, um, you should take a look at it. And and I think that's what I'd like to know. What Denise? Uh, I know where I'm single focused. I'm going to find more more female led funds and deals that I want to. I'm going to ask the community to bring us. But how do we use this forum? I know how the future of work is going to have the gig economy, which I believe plays to the skill sets you're talking about for women. But how do we want to take this? When I have ever said, let's have a, a you know, a women finance group. And I was like, half the women say yes, half the women say, I don't want anything like that. Just like you've shunned feminism. But how, what should our forum be to keep this going other than, than expanding the community, expanding the deal flow with that filter? The reason I was excited to have this panel, and I think we wrote it one of the original descriptions, is that it's a fresh look at the potential for the future to be female and women at work. And I think that, you know, in our prep call, Susan had mentioned that there are a lot of efforts happening in pockets that are not connected and are somewhat directional less. And more than anything, an example like an Elevate, Susan, which I know that you have a linkage to, when I see a situation like a networking group around women, which is a go-to model for how do we solve for this, that tends to be women talking to women in a closed circle who it's positive because you illuminate the problems and you realize you're not the only one and there's validity to that. But that tends to put us back into a system that is broken to begin with. So what I'm proposing is that when I say the future is female, that's what me and my team are working on is creating an operational framework for what that means. So how can the ecosystem and the players and the stakeholders in the ecosystem, almost like a credential, not a credential, but almost like a, 10-point framework on the things that you need to think about when investing, when dealing. What are those standards that we hold each other to? 
and almost like a guidebook or a playbook for the future is female in a fresh perspective, what that means and connecting women to opportunities. In my mind, that's what we're working at. We're, we're more than happy to share that and get collaboration here. But I think that that is an actionable point that can remove out the emotion, that can look at the economics and the moral opportunity and connect it in a meaningful way. Denise, I completely agree with you. My sense is that, uh, of course, there is a group of uh, people, women or men or minorities who need hand-holding and need to be welcomed to the world and they need support that, you know, not everybody is bad and don't be afraid. Let us teach you how to deal with uh, our kind and uh, make you feel comfortable. That's what I think um, Jim was talking about, James was talking about. Uh, and this mentorship is, of course, needed. Uh, but there are many groups around who are providing this mentorship. My sense is that our um, modus operandi is different. We can actually do something uh, on our own without asking uh, for big groups, for education, re-education. We're in a very unique position uh, on this platform, especially because there are so many people who really want to make a change. And let's make it because we can invest, we can uh, talk to people, um, uh, to our friends and uh, make them aware of the issue. And again, uh, the major premise here today, which sounded so loud and so clear, and thank you all the speakers, that it is a business case. Let's not, um, my suggestion is not to go into the areas which are already occupied to be compassionate um, mentors. Let's come up with money and let's invest. That's my mindset right now. We just, give, get, we just need that to, to get the funnel going. Doesn't mean we'll take everyone, but let's let's find the top tier of this that have this this quality, and not just women. It's diversity. Mark, I think you should create a subcommittee for this topic and get interested parties to join uh, and and have a brainstorming session and see how we can connect and collaborate on how we put pieces together. But it has to be practical, it has to be operational, and it has to be systemic. All right, as long as you're as long as you're the co-leader of, of that, then yes. I'm down. Um, Alex, did you okay. have one last comment there on something that was said? I did, yes. Thank you, Denise. Uh, I wanted to uh, refer back to what James had said uh, about his daughter uh, being active in uh, STEM and sciences and having the opportunities. Um, I mentor a lot of uh, young women and actually teenage women. My foundation, I set up my foundation, and, and the name of my great-grandma, who was amazing, kind of lived at the time of uh, Marie Curie. Uh, but uh, and and we ran a program uh, with the Embassy of Israel and many other embassies mm. where we was ambassador become an ambassador for a day and we we reached out to uh, girls uh, aged 13 to 17, amazing girls you know socially uh, oriented most of them STEM STEM focused and so on uh, and and then another conversation part of many events pre-COVID were younger kind of 25 26 year old. Uh, women, for example, from Google engineering departments would come up to me hearing this kind of a discussion, um, uh, uh, dialogue by kind of older people to them, said, we don't understand what you're actually talking about. We feel empowered. We feel ready for any challenge. We don't feel hampered in any way. What is this discussion about? And what these uh, up-and-coming you know, young women don't realize that the moment they want to start a family, 
or the moment they enter into an environment where a few guys will make silly jokes, which will stick, which will get into their mindset, they will slowly start withdrawing. Mm. By the age of 32, regardless of how amazing they might have been at the university, they will find reasons, they will color them up, and they'll say, I'm not going to be in the middle of the battlefield with all these crazy people. Like, I will have something easier. I cannot deal with this anymore. So the important thing is to create a system that will take these amazing minds through the cycle, through the life cycle, because they will hit obstacles that uh, they might not even share with their fathers, with uncles, with because it's so I think that's why it's important to think of systemic solutions just so we can scale up. Ready to go. Interesting. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, James, my father was like you, and I, I thought the same as your daughter. And then I got into boards where I was the only woman and started to get stomach pains from being bullied on boards. And I really don't think you realize it until you have a family. And my husband actually was in my MBA class. So we're complete equals. Actually, I always made more money than he did. He went to <laughs> MIT. You know, he's, he's smart, everything, but. I think it, it really doesn't hit you until you're, um, you're, you're more senior in your career. I 100% um, echo that. I want to thank everyone so much for their comments. Um, I actually, I, I work with um, Denise, but I spent before um, finding her, I spent the first 17 years of my career uh, working in traditional broadcast media and then moving over to the tech world working for Google. I thankfully had a father who allowed me, and a mother who allowed me to believe that I could do anything. I played a Division One sport, um, graduated um, from Boston University, uh, came right out of the gates running, um, and was on many panels, nominated to many honors. I burned out after having three kids because while I was taught that I could do it all, I didn't realize that I couldn't do it all at once. And so I did not set up the structure around me to facilitate that life. And I did not have that example shown to me either. So I think there are plenty of smart women out there. I am now a career coach as well. I work with many women who are extremely smart, who are very concerned about what's going to happen to them upon having families, um, whether they've chosen the right partner or not to support that lifestyle. So I just want to agree with the fact that this is systemic change. It's so important to be having these conversations and to be getting the investments in so that more smart, driven women who can really impact GDP in the bottom line stop opting out and dropping out, and that we help invest in creating those systems for them. So thank you. Can, can, can I just give one perspective? I really oh, can. Nazumbi has his hand up. If you could just okay, sorry. Hold your thought. Sure, thanks. Um, thank you, Mark. And it's been a great discussion so far. And, and I just want to make a quick contribution, a comment, and perhaps one suggestion. In, in terms of um, spaces that um, women can um, inhabit and safely talk with other women. I, I, I wouldn't diminish the value of that. So I say that as a black person who is gay, and I know that I have spaces that are only gay. I have spaces that are only male um, that are safe for us to talk about and, you know, crystallize what the issues are without being um, feeling the threat of the white society, so to speak, and it helps us to kind of just identify, organize, and then we go to the second order. Um, I think a colleague mentioned earlier where we can then work with 
allies and people that are not necessarily part of that community in a way that allows us to to join forces. So I, I think one shouldn't undervalue um, safe spaces. The other thing is around intersectionality, and it's great. There are a lot of amazing women on this panel, and the example I give around, um, obviously, it's been 100 years since women could vote in the U.S., but not all women were allowed to vote 100 years ago. Um, it wasn't until the 50s, the Japanese-Americans, um, and it wasn't until the 60s, the African-Americans were allowed to vote. Um, so when it comes to female rights, I think it's, a, it's also just as important to think about the wide range of female representation um, to, to make it as inclusive as possible so they don't have a repeat of what's happening in wider society within the gender movement. Lauren, just really quickly, and you know, once again, you know, somehow you will hear this type of thing from me if I'm on these calls. But I would also really urge like the women, you know, the excellent women leaders that I've heard on this call. You probably also need to get with some black women founders and some black women VCs because, and the reason why I give you that comment, okay, I think about, for instance, my mother. One thing that my mother and the people in her generation always say is that, look, a lot of these kind of like gender issues, these were not issues for us. Like when my parents got married back in the 50s, my mother was making more money than my father was. So, you know, and back then it was like, you know, I remember when she would tell that joke. You know, yeah, oh, Elwood, you know, my father. Oh, Elwood, you don't let your wife work? He says, are you crazy? Of course she's going to work. And so I think you would also find, too, that, you know, the families of women like my mother, you know, you will find men that have already gotten past these issues way long time ago because for most black families to have a middle-class lifestyle, they had to have two women working. They had to have two educated, you know, people in the household, right? And so I think that you would also really find a lot of, you know, com you know, com you know, comradeship, so to speak, you know, if you were to get with some black women founders and black women VCs. Lauren, if there are any, I don't even know if there are any. Is there such a thing as a black uh, woman VC firm? Absolutely. And, 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 well, to the extent that you, you have entrepreneurial, you know, whether they're leaders or whatever part of uh, business or finance, please bring them. That's how this works. Um, they will be they will be welcomed warmly. I am I, I am I am going to really I'm going to make that a you know not distant future thing, but some really I, I, that's something I want to talk to you about too, definitely. Great. So, so I thought the comments were just now uh, were really interesting about. Um, whether it's the glass ceiling within organizations or the cultures, the embedded cultures within organizations uh, that I quite candidly never didn't appreciate. Um, and and I, I wonder how the conversation uh -oh. about the future of work alters all because we're, we're getting into a very different, perhaps, future of how people work. And also, um, I, and I would encourage uh, as well, uh, you know, universities, I've been dealing a lot with Columbia University School of Engineering, and the majority of people that I talk to are women, uh, and, and what their roles are, uh, you know, going forward. And so I think there's multiple levels to, to, you know, to think about and talk about and, uh, and, and address the myriad of issues.
but thank you. Well, it seems like uh, so many people are still with us from the very beginning. Uh, it just shows how many men and women are dedicated to this issue and want to uh, to fly to uh, to realize all the potential. So why don't we uh, plan something which Mark and uh, Denise decided on to create a club, and uh, why don't we run a similar event? Uh, in a couple of months with uh, uh, very good ideas, specific ideas like the ones uh, which uh, we heard today from Heather. And uh, we see if we can find investors for these ideas to actually do something. Because, again, uh, there is so much hand-holding in this world, especially in the United States. But it um, leads, I think, at this point to frustration. So many people talk and uh, the issues are still the same. Let's be different. And and just as a practical, and thank you, Tony, I totally agree. We, we have a, an onboard uh, part of our website. You know, if you've got deals, you know, or funds, uh, or philanthropies, you know, or even strategic advisors, um, you know, that are w- women or uh, bringing that diversity, you know, you, they, the part of the deals will not be, um, Public, just up, just give some basic information. And then at some point, then you give information only goes to, to me and to our internal team. Um, so just as you see things, email me, use the onboard, um, reach out to anybody. Um, there is an app that you don't have to always use the app, but I'm just trying to keep our community interconnected. And, uh, this is, this was re- recorded, um, we will, you know, a lot of people couldn't make it, um, but hopefully it'll catalyze, like we said, and um, it takes the village, so help us. Hey, listen, I'm not just saying it. There's tons of these kind of like networking groups out of there, but I really got to say I'm really getting a lot out of the time that I'm spending with 361. I'm, I'm not just saying that, really. Appreciate it, Lonnie. platform and uh, Denise for colliding the event and um, all the wonderful keynote speakers who came to us from uh, different parts of the world. It's already, already late night there and you're still with us and thank you for being with us, everybody who has been listening to us and contributing. Look forward to seeing you at our future, future work events. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks, Denise. Thanks, Simon. Thank you.